Let the glory of the Lord rise among us. Let the glory of the Lord rise among us. Let the praises of our King rise among us. Let him rise. Sing it with me, all. Let the glory rise. Let the praises rise. Let the glory, let the glory rise. Let the glory of the Lord rise. Let the praises of our King. and sisters welcome to the worship experience of the greater little zion baptist church we are blessed and honored to have you tune in to us today and so we invite you to fellowship with us to worship with us and to celebrate in both the singing of god's glory and the preaching of the word our expectancy is that god has great things in store so be blessed as the word of god blesses your spirit and the singing gives you the inspiration you need in jesus name Yeah. 
And welcome to the announcements for the activities here at Greater Little Zion for the week of September 5th. Weekly activities include our adult Sunday school held each Sunday at 8.30 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 o'clock a.m. The Youth and Young Adult Sunday School is held each Saturday morning at 10 a.m. and is open to all youth and young adults. Prayer meeting is held each Wednesday at 6 p.m. where intercessory prayers are offered by a group of Zion prayer warriors praying for our church, community, and the world at large. If you have a specific prayer request, please contact your deacon or the admin office. The adult Bible study is held each Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. Pastor Murphy and Deacon Joanne Johnson O'Neill are the facilitators for the month of September as the study continues to explore how we as a congregation can improve our church membership through the development of authentic relationships. Making friends, making disciples, growing your church through authentic relationships is the title of the source book and it can be purchased on Amazon or other literary websites. The Evangelism and Missions Ministry is seeking your assistance to help them provide extra blessings to families in need during the ministry's December drive-through food distribution. Your donation of a $25 Visa gift card would be greatly appreciated so that this ministry can give a little extra to these families. Please share the email that you received last week with your family, friends, co-workers, and others who might be willing to give towards this cause. The gift cards can be donated during the months of September and October up until December 11th. You can either mail them to the church or deliver them to the admin office on Wednesdays of each week between the hours of 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Deacon Nolan Crockett, Sister Kathleen Crockett, and Deacon Anthony Baysmore are the points of contact. The Evangelism and Missions Ministry will also be hosting its monthly drive-through food distribution on Saturday, September the 18th from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. Food will be distributed on a first-come, first-served basis while supplies last. Please note that CDC guidelines will be strictly adhered to for the safety of all. For the month of September, the Family Ministry's prayer focus is on restoration of the family. You're invited to join them in offering prayers throughout the month for families to be rejuvenated and recharged and to continue seeking the Lord's direction in their lives. The scripture reference is Psalms 51 verses 1 through 4, 10, and 15. The Family Ministry will also be hosting its Couples Zoom session on Friday, September the 17th at 7 p.m. to continue the discussions from the book entitled The Fundamentals of Marriage, written by Howard and Danielle Taylor. Please contact Deacons Anthony and Terry Basemore for additional information and to get the Zoom link for this session. If you're not receiving weekly Zion emails, please contact the admin office to make certain that your correct email address is on file. Thank you and have a blessed week.
let us join this time in the word of God as we come to a new series of sermons for the month of September. We will be talking from the subject, He Touched Me. We're going to look at the touch of Jesus in the gospel narratives as he went about not only healing, but making whole, not just from sickness, but making a person whole from his divine touch as well. We want you to join us this morning in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 38 through 41. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 38 through 41. And here is what it says. After leaving the synagogue that day, Jesus went to Simon's home, where he found Simon's mother-in-law very sick with a high fever. Please heal her, everyone begged. Standing at her bedside, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she got up at once and prepared a meal for them. As the sun went down that evening, people throughout the village brought sick people, sick members of their family to Jesus. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed everyone. Many were possessed by demons, and the demons came out at his command, shouting, You are the Son of God. But because they knew he was the Messiah, he rebuked them and refused to let them speak. Our concentration this morning is going to be on the last line of verse 40. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed every one of them. We want to put a tag on the text and talk about from the subject, don't lose your touch. Don't lose your touch. The same story can be found particularly in reference to Simon Peter's mother-in-law. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, and in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. What's interesting is that in both Matthew and Mark's Gospel, both writers allude to the touch of Jesus to Simon Peter's mother-in-law in the process of her healing. For whatever reason, Luke does not make reference to that touch at all. And I utilize point of Matthew and Mark because both seem to highlight the instance of healing coming through the process of a touch. And so we want to lift up this theme today about the power of a touch. What the touch did in the ministry of Jesus and what the touch meant to the life of those who were recipients of that touch. Mental health professionals have identified multiple mental and emotional side effects that we suffer from this pandemic. Not only have we suffered from emotional uh, distress, not only have we suffered from economic reduction, employment loss, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, fear, sadness, anger, and the list can go on. But one such implication that serves as a healing virtue on the one hand, uh, and yet is serving as a dividing factor on the other, is the actual missing crucial element of the human touch in life and in health. Social distancing is the mechanism that we're using to assist in preventing the spread of the coronavirus, in essence, it prohibits the touch of one to another to prevent contagiousness. But this very prevention on the one hand has created in some instances and created and increased in others the physical and social isolation effect. We have data from researchers that the lack of physical touch is a growing health concern. And then from sociologists, we recognize that it's a growing social concern as well. Many who were used to a handshake, who were used to being embraced by fellow employees, 
who were used to a hug from a friend or in a custom level of platonic touch from someone else now feels the effect of that lost touch. It's Dancer Keltner of the University of California in Berkeley who says that the touch is the fundamental language of connection. There is something about touching that enables us to not only communicate, but even communicate in a silent but yet effective way. Touch repetition, he says, can impact people on a psychological and a physical level. He further recognizes that a big part of our brain is devoted to making sense of what touches do. There are billions of cells that process information about, Trump, about touch. The right touch seems to activate a bunch of nerves that improves our immune system. It has a way of releasing that neurochemical called oxy, oxytocin. Oxytocin, by its nickname, is called the cuddle chemical. It has a way of also reducing stress among us. But touching also, we know, nurtures growth. Pediatricians tell us that infants whose mothers touch them more and more had some more advanced visual motor skills and gross motor skills development than those who were touched less. As valuable as the touch may be, we are again becoming a society increasingly cautious of social touching and even to a great degree personal touching. What we're not talking about and yet is being identified is the long-term consequence to the non-touch. One such consequence we know is the reduction of union, the reduction of embracing. It is the love expression that we have become accustomed to in the local church congregation. A benefit of the touch in church life that translates into regular life is salvation. When we think about salvation, we have to broaden our understanding of the term and not limit it to some destination in eternity. But salvation has both the eternal and the existential meaning, the right now, where we are in the moment, and that touch conveys many salvific benefits to those who experience it. I mean, we are at a point now where we must admit our own mourning regarding the lost of hugs and the lost of group hugs and the lost of communal meals and the lost of just being able to sit across the table from someone in having dialogue and periodically touch by way of expression and by way of affirmation. Yet, as strange as it sounds, this pandemic has also created a space, space in many ways that has caused people to now recognize the imperativeness, importance of slowing down, spending time with their family, and focusing on things that are extremely important and recognizing that other things may deserve a secondary presence. Most importantly, this slowing down method has encouraged and connected us to the importance of connecting with others. This is why both sociologists and even theologians has recognized that we not only have post-traumatic stress from the pandemic, but we also are experiencing, on the positive note, post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth simply suggests that we are now experiencing diverse forms of salvation. We are experiencing diverse forms of being rescued, of being delivered. We are experiencing now the 
form and the presence of creativity, of starting over again. These are growth factors that otherwise we may not have been introduced to. We further know that man has these multiple diverse human relationships that involve the interaction of what we call community. Community which involves others, which breeds in itself modes of satisfaction, fulfillment, but as one such tangible need of each of us is definitely the human touch, we need that because it seems to be produced in these communal settings. Community saves us. Church saves us. Clubs saves us from isolation, from loneliness. In return, it has a way through the touch of one another of providing self-work, of providing dignity, of affirming self-worth and affirming dignity and the interaction between all of us seems to produce birth transformation from being what one might consider insignificant to now becoming or recognizing their significant from being sick or fractured to being now whole, informing, as Dr. Seuss says in his own wisdom, recognizing because of that community, we have brains in our heads. We have feet in shoes, says Dr. Seuss. You've got a brain in your head. You've got feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself in any direction you choose. Now that community has reinforced that we can do what we can believe we can do. We can produce what we believe we can produce. And we can go where we believe we can go. And that is exactly what I lift out of this text in Luke chapter 4, beginning particularly in verse 40 and 41. The physician records a special act that deserves our attention by the chief physician himself, says Clause B of verse 40 in Luke chapter 4. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed everyone. That's the New Living Translation. No matter what the disease was, his touch healed everyone. The New American Standard says, laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. Now, what I like about this is that the New Living Translation presents the text in its past tense. But the New American Standard presents the text in the present tense, which suggests that not only did the touch of Jesus heal in the past, but the touch of Jesus even now in the present carries the authority to bring about transition, transformation, wholeness. I like this story. I like it because of the very line in verse 40. No matter what their diseases were, there were no limitations. Diseases that prohibited touch, that caused people to be isolated. Diseases that permitted for, uh, persons to be ostracized and to even be marginalized by the community at large. Diseases that in their form in itself cause people to stay away from other people, no interaction with others at all. Even leprosy has to be considered in this text. Diseases that caused one to be at a distance and not experience the touch. Yet, says the text, Jesus put his hand, touched every single last one of them. He uses the touch to change a life. The 
touch was such an important tool in the ministry of Jesus. Let me share with you what I think that I see in Jesus and why I'm trying to convince you that we should never lose our touch. Because Jesus did something overwhelmingly convincing that now says to me, we can't lose our touch. We cannot permit certain situations, really any situation, if at all possible, to cause us to lose our touch. Let me say a couple of things about Jesus. First of all, Jesus, this whole business of touching defined Jesus as a radical. That's what Jesus was, a radical. There was this emotional and mental problem by the religious officials and the teachers who witnessed Jesus in this radical mode. He didn't operate within the confinements of the box that they were accustomed to. The context of the story suggested that the box mentality is out. It's out. It's not even a part of Jesus' thinking as we read verse 40. Listen to what the text says. As the sun went down that evening, the people made sure to abide by the Sabbath rule, which prohibited even traveling on the Sabbath. So the people were going to follow the rules because they did not want to violate, quote, unquote, the law. What's interesting is that Jesus disregards that rule. Read the Gospels, and we know that at least some seven-plus times Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Whether he went to a place to heal or someone came to him to be healed, they traveled. And Jesus, in this radical form, knew that there would be Sabbath rule enforcers waiting at every opportunity to pounce on him and if they found out even pounce on the people for Sabbath violations. That's the reason why I believe the people waited from Friday evening till Saturday evening till the sun went down to go see Jesus. But remember that miracle that Jesus performs in the gospel of John chapter 5 as he heals this man at the pool of Bethsaida the officials because he worked out of the box and his business of doing was so radical says the text of John 5 the officials wanted to kill him because his radicalism outweighed their religious rules. Jesus' rationale for his radicalism on the Sabbath day, listen to what he says. Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. I had to read that and then reread that because as many of you I was taught that the Sabbath was to be recognized as a holy day because we are told in the Old Testament we are to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But what's interesting is something that I read by the late Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel who says that we often just read the text without understanding the background of the text. And Heschel says we got to remember when it comes to the Sabbath we make the Sabbath. We make the Sabbath. Not the Sabbath makes us. Because if you think about it, in the eyes of God, the Sabbath is the Sabbath. Whether you do anything or not, it's still going to be the Sabbath according to the vision of God. But for us in humanity, the Sabbath only becomes what we make of the Sabbath. That's why there's the encouragement for us in both the Old Testament and now by Jesus as he reiterates the Sabbath was made for man. Read the Old Testament. It tells you that on the Sabbath, God rests. That's where we get out of the Genesis 2 passage. 
it means that God decided that on that seventh day, I'm going to rest and observe my labor and discover all that I'd done was good. And yet we come to the New Testament and Jesus violates what we did in the tradition of the Old Testament in the Mosaic law by making this a sacred day by law, suggesting that nothing can be done when in essence, Jesus is saying, oh no, God never told you you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. He just informed you that you needed a Sabbath day and to make it holy. It should be a practice in your life. In modern times, we can't suggest that Sunday is the only day of rest because we may have a work schedule that might permit Tuesday to be the day of rest or Wednesday or any other day. And look what Jesus does. He scraps what the religious officials are accustomed to and he blows their mind. He messes them up because his radicalism suggests that I will not be put in a box when it comes to bringing healing and wholeness to people. I'll not wait until Monday to give them the touch that they need. I'll do it in the midst of a Sabbath celebration. Notice the attitude of the people in the text. Look at what the text says. The people, it implies, throughout the village, verse 40, brought sick family members to Jesus. Let's look closely. Could the post-traumatic stress of sickness among the people birth that post-traumatic growth in the minds of being tired or being sick and tired by the people? Watch the power in that now. Because when you become sick and tired of being sick and tired, says to me by the people, you need to do something. And perhaps they were confronted with language similar to that of the, way, of the late Wayne Dyer who says, be miserable or motivate yourself. Whatever has to be done, it's always your choice. They could have remained sick. Read the text closely. Family members could have let family members remain sick, but there was a change in their mind. It could have been because they heard by way of reputation of what Jesus has done on the Sabbath, healing all manner of diseases, all kinds of people. It could have been they just got tired of being sick, and if Jesus was healing, they might as well risk it all and come to see who Jesus is. Whatever, as Wayne Dyer says it is, it's your choice. Well, maybe they wrestled. Maybe they wrestled with a similar thought posed by Alice Walker, who says that the most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. And maybe they finally decide, hold it, we got power. If nothing else, we got power to walk from where we are to walk to where Jesus is and risk it all that we might receive a divine difference. And that's the word I want to convey to you today that you don't have to sit where you are in the misery, in the mire of depression or in the mire of fear. You don't have to stay in that context of isolation. Risk it. Listen to Wayne Dyer again. You can be miserable or you can decide to motivate yourself. Whatever has to be done, remember, it's your choice. I don't know about you, but I decided to go where Jesus was. As these persons did in the text, they decided to go where he was. And they're hearing, perhaps, even they're witnessing of the radical work of Jesus motivated these people throughout the village to bring their sick family members to Jesus. That radical transformation for a touch was worth the risk of it all. When I was thinking about this, I, I was reminded of when at the beginning of uh, Kirk Franklin's popularity, I say popularity, he had been out for a while, but <clears throat> when he produced the song Stomp, and he released it, and he got the 
uh, not only a significant amount of recognition and praise for the creativity of the song, but he also encountered a great deal of criticism. The lyrics was interesting, but if you would go back and listen to the song, listen to what he says when the song even, before the song even begins. I think he was responding to his critics. He was responding to those who talked about his radicalism in shifting the manner in which gospel music had been traditionally heard to what we now call contemporary slash hip-hop gospel. But listen to his response. Listen to what he says. For those of you who think gospel music has gone too far, you think we too radical with our message well, I got news for you. You ain't heard nothing yet. And if you don't know, now you know. Glory, glory. Listen to what he says. For those of you who think gospel music has gone too far. Now, let's help finish his sentence. Too far to the left. Too far to radicalism. Too far to out of the box. Too far to difference. He says... You think our message is too radical, we got news for you. You ain't heard nothing yet. And that's exactly what his ministry has done. But listen, that's what Jesus' ministry did. And that's what Jesus, I want to contend, is arguing that he wants us to do. Be radical. Be a church that is recognized for being radical. Doing stuff that no one would ever imagine that a church would do. And that means outreach. That means reaching out to folk who otherwise would not be sought after. That means communing and conversing and giving. That means doing stuff that nobody would think would come from the church. Because Jesus was a radical servant of his father. We are called to be radical servants of the kingdom. You read Luke's gospel, and Luke tells us clearly that Jesus brings what he terms as the kingdom of God to the people. The kingdom of God simply means the message of truth, the message of translation. It's wrapped up in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. The spirit of of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to set at liberty those who are captive, whomever is bound to get them free, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, to transform their life. Today is the day of salvation. That's the kingdom of God, says Jesus. And that's the message that I want my church to convey to a dying world. I don't want you to lose your touch. That's a touch. Reaching out to people. I remember when I went into the ministry, the very first ministerial experience I had with evangelism was street ministry. And I got to tell you, the very first year I was afraid, didn't know what to expect of people, scared to go around. And my pastor was a street preacher before he became a pastor at the time. And so we went out into the streets, not far from the church. In the city of Alexander, we had people who were on the street corners, you know, consuming alcohol, doing who knows whatever else. And that's where we went to share the gospel. They heard us. They paid attention to us, but it was connecting with a human touch to those who otherwise we would just ride by in the cars or just walk by. It's Jesus speaking through us. It's Jesus saying to the world, you can touch me, but more importantly, I will touch you. That's what Jesus does. He calls the church to be radical. He calls the Christian to be radical. And radical evangelism, radical living, radical testimony simply means it involves 
touching the untouchable. Go back to clause B of verse 40 and remember what the text says, no matter what their disease was, the touch of his hand healed them all. Remember, says New American Standard, laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. Touching the untouchable. Remember, when you read through the gospel, Jesus sits with the untouchable, with people whom the religious officials would dare not sit beside. He visits homes that were prohibiting from being visited by those who were religious. Jesus went in there and sat like it was nothing. Touched the untouchable, no matter what their disease was. It calls us to be radical touch the untouchable. But then let me give you the second point. Why Jesus encourages us not to lose our touch. Not only because Jesus was radical, but also because Jesus was relational. Jesus seemed to believe in this relationship thing. Listen to the text again. No matter their disease, the touch of his hand healed them all. Here he was. What I find interesting about this whole relational issue is about this touch because throughout scripture, the laying on of hands for consecration, for praying for a blessing, that was typical. The Old Testament and the New Testament tells us that happened. But the touch of Jesus was different. And what made it different was, although we witnessed the laying on of hands as a symbolic act in the Old Testament by the prophets, however, nowhere in the Old Testament or even in rabbinic teachings or rabbinic literature is the laying on of hands associated with miraculous healing. That's because Jesus' touch was about a literal transfer of relational divine power <clears throat> to change a condition. You've got to get that. Nowhere in the Old Testament or in rabbinical literature or in rabbinical teaching is there the laying on of hands associated with the miraculous. We don't get that until we get to the New Testament and we witness Jesus laying on of the hands because it involved a literal transfer. It's a transfer of divine power from God into the person to whom it's connected. It was the flow of the kingdom of God through Jesus. Some scholars say that the laying on of hands for Miracles was not even known in Palestine, but was known outside Palestine in pagan circles. And I would contend, even if that is true, notice how Jesus took the practice that was known to the pagan world and used it in Judaism as a means to convey divine blessings. You can hear, if you think about that, the ring of Joseph's words. What you meant for evil, God used it for good as a relational tool. I can tell you how I know that's true. Jarius knew, he knew it for himself, that if Jesus would merely touch his daughter, she would be made well. There's a deaf mute that is healed in Mark 7 merely by the touch of Jesus. Jesus touches the eyes of the blind man and restores his sight in Mark 8 at Bethsaida. 
Jesus takes an epileptic boy by the hand and makes him stand up and cure him, Mark 9. Jesus, in all of those miraculous moments, is being relational in touching persons who otherwise would be ignored. Now here's our challenge. Are we relational? Are we willing to hug the unlovable, the untouchable? Are we willing to be genuine in our relational attempts? Characteristic that is life-changing in a church is when that church is recognized for establishing strong relationships with people. I have instituted on our Wednesday evening Bible study this study about making disciples and a primary goal of that is to make sure that we understand the importance of being relational, of making sure that we establish pure, genuine relationships with one another so that those on the outside who are looking for a safe haven can find such a relationship in the context of our church. So notice the text. Jesus is not only radical, Jesus is not only relational, but Jesus is also repetitive. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you discover that Jesus doesn't just do this one time, doesn't just do this two times, but he keeps doing this over and over again in the three and a half years of ministry we witness him. He sort of digs at us by saying, you start something, but you don't finish it. You don't continue it. You don't maintain what you should be doing. And Jesus is saying to us, you gotta be repetitive in loving people and caring for people and reaching out for people. You can't just do it once in a while. It's a lifestyle. And here it is. These people bought Jesus, those who were sick. And I know that this repetitive nature is obvious because read verse 41. Demons recognize that this is not just someone who did this on a one-time basis. Listen to the text. Many were possessed by demons and the demons came out at his command shouting, you are the son of God, but because they knew he was the Messiah. They knew he was the deliverer. Demons did. Demons knew that this wasn't just someone who was involved in a one-time thing. Jesus did this kind of deliverance repetitively. He touched folk. And you want to be known for the church who does this, and the church who does that in the good. The church who cares, the church who feeds, the church who clothes, the church who visits. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 25. You want to be known for that. You want to be known for the repetitiveness of doing and bringing the kingdom of God. And then finally, Jesus is radical. Jesus is relational. Jesus is repetitive. But Jesus is redemptive. Notice what verse 40 Clause B says in its closing. Not only no matter what disease it was, his touched, his touching by his hand healed every one of them. He brought redemption to their life. In redemption, Jesus with the touch transferred hope. He gave them hope. That touch provided the unction to believe and the unction to expect and the unction to live. I'm reminded of a line by the Swiss theologian, the late Emil Brunner, who says it this way. What oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the meaning of life. What oxygen is to the lungs, such 
is what hope is to the meaning of life. And Obruna was contending that a person lives when they get hope. And in Jesus touching, he's bringing hope. And I want you to recognize, how about that person who was in distress, that person who was mourning, that person who was going through a very difficult time, the fact that you took and hugged them, held their hand, comfort them, transform that moment of mourning into one of expectation and joy and hope because you were bringing redemption to their life. Let me close with this one story. That is that we are rejoicing, we are excited, we are living epistles because the words of that hymn ring true to us. You can identify it. It's Bill Gaither back in 1963, a year after he had married Gloria. He was accompanying the late Doug Oldman, who was a singer in Indiana. And Doug was singing for his father, the late Dale Oldman, who was a preacher at the time. He was doing revival. And Gaither was playing the piano, and when they had finished the revival service, they were on their way home. And when they got to Bill Gaither's house, when he was getting out the car, Doug Olderman says to him, you should write a song. You should write a song about, he touched me, he touched me. Bill Gaither went into his house, and for a moment he sat and thought about that thing. And all night, all night, he worked on that song. And in working on that song, he came up with these lines. Because the song, in connection to its very theme, touched me. He touched me. He transformed me. He changed me. He did something to me. Talking about Jesus now. And listen to what he said. Shackled by a heavy burden. See, now he's thinking about how he was a sinner. And the sin is, and the issue is, his whole entire being is shackled by the burden of sin beneath a load of guilt and shame. Then the hand of Jesus touched me. Now I'm no longer the same. See, that's, that's our testimony. That's our entire testimony. That's our shouting point. That's our joy under that heavy burden of life's guilt and shame, sin, whatever it is. But he touched me. I met him. I risked it all and believed his invitation. And he touched me. And now I'm no longer the same. That's what we're shouting about. I'm not what I used to be. Not what I ought to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be, and I'm working at becoming what I know I'm going to be. He touched me. All the joy that floods my soul. For your sake, I'm going to stop on this point because this is shouting right here. Something happened, and now I know. Touched me. Here it is. Whole. That's it. That's what the touch of Jesus is all about. That's why we can't lose our touch, is because through us, God makes people whole. Don't lose your touch because the Father wants to use us. Our Father, thank you for the word and the opportunity to share in this moment in the life of Jesus. God, I pray from this moment going forward that somebody today gets that revelation that it's imperative that we not lose our touch, but that we maintain our walk and our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our neglect, our moments of negligence. Lord, restore unto us the joy. We make the decision today. We want to be vessels in your hands to be used for your purpose. So once again, Lord, 
rebaptize us, anoint us afresh, that we might be about your business, wherever give you the glory. We believe today that somebody is going to be changed. Somebody's going to come to know you in a personal way, and someone's heart is going to be resurrected to the newness of life. They're going to rededicate themselves to life. Today, life is going to change for the victorious through Jesus Christ. We thank you and believe that by faith in his glorious name we pray. Amen. Well, we're excited about knowing that somebody today is going to walk in a newness of life. And this word is going to help you recognize you cannot lose your touch in communing and in staying in fellowship with one another. We are blessed and privileged to have you tune in to us this morning and pray that you'll continue to do so. We also encourage you to continue your financial support. We certainly appreciate your giving to the congregation of Greater Little Zion, and we pray that in your giving, our sharing in the gospel is a blessing unto you as well. If you so desire to do so today in your giving, please recognize the means in which by the end of this service you can see. You can give in many different ways, whether it be by the traditional giving of a tithes and offering by way of mail or by way of text giving. Uh, or by way of our online giving. There are manners in which we have prepared that we might receive what you have for us. Always remember, we are here to bless you with the word of God. And never forget, God loves you. And so do I. Have a blessed, wonderful, expecting